Our U.S. Supreme Court has been busy and they've indicated some really significant cases that they are going to uh, take up during this new term. And one of these involves a showdown over abortion pill access. Uh, some folks are saying in this high stakes, uh, high stakes legal battle, the Biden administration is defending uh, federal approval of the abortion pill, Mifepristone, including a recent move to make it available by mail. And we know the Supreme Court on yesterday took up this case, and this is going to lead to a definitive decision on whether this drug, most commonly used for medication abortions, will continue to be easily available, including by mail. And here to help us understand uh, how busy our Supreme Court is going to be and how the decisions that they will make will impact all of us is uh, Santa Clara Law Professor Marjolene Armstrong. Uh, welcome back to the show, Professor Armstrong. This court, uh, it, 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 in a normal time, we may say we are excited that the Supreme Court is busy, but given this 6-3 conservative majority court, when they get busy, we should all get worried uh, or be worried because some of the decisions that this court uh, has already handed down have been uh, catastrophic. They have set women back. They've set people of color back. Uh, and it's just been so hard to predict uh, you know, how they will rule. So let's start with this abortion case. This is going to be the first case uh, where the Supreme Court is going to review the issue of abortion since it overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision. So tell us what's at stake in this abortion pill case. Well, in, in this case, it's uh, first of all, the FDA's approval of the, the, the medicine and then the ability to have that medicine sent uh, across state lines uh, through the mail. And so when the Supreme Court decided Dobbs and left it to the states, it really opened up a, a, a can of worms because you have these issues about interstate commerce and interstate travel. And so a state can outlaw something, but if it's been approved by the federal government and it's something that's moving from state to state, then states' powers, uh, individual states' powers, uh, can really be limited with respect to being able to bar uh, something that's been federally approved. Well, let's step back a minute and talk about abortion pills, or this pill in particular that was approved by the FDA. Uh, give us some sense about how uh, you know readily available the pills are today, how often they are used, and uh, you know, in what manner are they used? Well, a number of um, pharmacies uh, refuse to issue these pills, and uh, they might cite uh, reasons like conscience or uh, the fact that their employees don't want to uh, be involved in this. But because they are available through uh, mail, it's uh, possible for people to get them without necessarily having to go to their pharmacy. So the access to the pills is really going to differ from uh, state to state uh, or from locale to locale uh, based on whether or not they're being distributed because you can't make a pharmacy um, distribute these. Well, again, I, I think it's important to note that this is a case that the Biden administration is welcoming the court to weigh in on because a lower court 
basically was restricting uh, the uh, use of this pill, the use of it to be uh, sent by mail. So this is a case kind of different from other cases where we've seen these conservative activists taking the lead to get a case before the Supreme Court. This is a challenge uh, by doctors, other medical prof professionals, and the Biden administration saying courts weigh in, the U.S. Supreme Court weigh in because we need you to clear up for us what are the you know the abilities of doctors in states to continue to prescribe this medication and to send it to patients in the mail, say perhaps to a state like Texas that has very restrictive abortion bans? Well, the original case was brought by a group that called themselves uh, doctors uh, for uh, the Hippocratic Oath. Or, that's not exactly what they were named, but um, they were conservative anti-abortion activists who wanted to challenge the ability uh, to get these drugs. And so the lower court, in a decision that was just ridiculous, uh, determined that the law was um, uh, um, was unconstitutional, well, I'm sorry, was, was not valid because of its interpretation of these FDA regulations that had been in place for years and well, essentially, years. Let me stop. So essentially, essentially, you had this very conservative uh, activist nonprofit organization right. bring the case uh, and right. they, they shopped it. We know they forum shopped. They went to uh, a forum uh, with yes. a judge who they knew had a history of being anti-abortion. So this is a very well thought out, very methodical process that we've seen uh, Republican activists use. We've seen it used in the case of affirmative action and now obviously in the case of case of abortion. And basically they find these test cases uh, as a way to get them all the way up to the Supreme Court knowing or hoping that the Supreme Court is going to rule in their favor and that therefore further restricting people's rights. So again, stepping back to just kind of reset, you have this very conservative nonprofit organization that forum shops to find this uh, very, uh, very, extremist conservative judge to determine that it is illegal, unconstitutional to uh, prescribe this medication that has been approved by the FDA and to send this medication across state lines, uh, even if a doctor has determined that it's medically necessary. So you get right. this then very oppressive lower decision. Right. So first we get the first level, this first court sides with these conservative uh, activists and then tell us what happens after that and then uh and the court of appeal uh, uh found that the uh, case was, was wrong and so that's why it's being appealed to the supreme court because the conservative activists want to have the uh intermediate court's decision overturned right so now we have this this the court let's go to the u.s supreme court let's what are they likely to do? Because you have them deciding in Dobbs that states, Texas, California, New York, you guys fight it out with your state legislatures. You decide if you want a six-week ban, a 12-week ban, or like California and New, New York, you know, a 20 or 25-week ban. So women are free to get abortions up, you know, to what people may call even late-stage abortions. So now you have the court weighing in and having to determine can this FDA approved pill be sent across lines? What do you what do you think the court's gonna rely on as it looks to make some 
determination in this case? Well, first of all, you have to realize that the court has not necessarily, uh, in fact, in overturning Roe, it's been ignoring precedent. And so with respect to how it's going to decide this, it's kind of open. But there are a couple of things that I think the court might uh, be inclined to find that an individual state is still a part of the United States. And so the United States law and the Constitution are the supreme law of the land. And it's an important constitutional principle that individual states shouldn't be interfering with interstate commerce. So those are the arguments in favor of finding the Texas law uh, unconstitutional uh, because it's interfering with interstate commerce. And when the court made the decision in Dobbs in terms of um, leaving it up to states to make their own decisions about uh, abortion law, uh, it said it was going to make things simpler, but it really just opened up all of these questions, again, about moving from state to state and about state conflicts. And so this is the, um, a situation that the Supreme Court created, really, in, um, in uh, uh, upholding uh, the challenge in, in, in Dobbs. So now you have the federal government in conflict with uh, what a state wants to do. And that, how, how the court's going to address that, I, I, I can't predict. Here's a you practical uh, dilemma, obviously. So again, if I am a doctor in California where abortions are legal and I provide telehealth services to pregnant women all over the country because they are part of, say, some health insurance plan or I'm a concierge doctor, so I just take private patients and I provide telehealth to them. I, or I, I have a client that was living in California or a patient that lives in California, but they're going to go spend some time in Texas. And I meet with them over Zoom. I make a diagnosis and then I prescribe this pill and send it to them or have it shipped to them by a pharmacy in a state like Texas that has a ban that prevents you from having an abortion after six weeks. Doesn't that in effect nullify the Texas abortion ban? If I'm able to call my doctor in California and have them send me a pill where I can take a medication and have a, a medically, you know, a, a prescription induced abortion in Texas? Well, yeah, I think that a more likely scenario is that you have, uh, say, a college student who's from California who goes to Texas and she brings these uh, pills with her. And so she's possessing something that the state would uh, find uh, illegal. And uh, or a woman decides to go across state lines and, and get get this. So, you know, the uh Transportation through the, the mail is certainly one thing, but another thing is, the again, people crossing state lines and people having prescriptions from one state and then going to a state like uh, Texas. And, and we know, you know that happens all the time. People, well, yeah. you board a plane from California and you have diabetes medication, you have 
heart medication, hypertension medication, and you go spend three months in Texas or Florida and you take your medication with you and you take the medication while you're in that state. Right, exactly. So that's why this is such a, a huge uh, issue because it is something that uh, you know can affect many people and it affects the ability of people to go from state to state in terms of uh, what they do in uh, their home state is um, illegal. Now, the thing about the drugs is it's been approved by the federal government. So that has a um, dimension that you don't have in a lot of cases. You know, for example, um, marijuana is legal in California, but it's not legal for you to take it to uh, Nevada. Uh, but marijuana is not approved by the fe federal government. Here you have an FDA-approved drug. So not only do you have conflicts between state law, but you have a conflict between the state and the federal law. And how the Supreme Court is going to deal with that, you know, generally, it shouldn't be much of a question in terms of the supremacy clause. Yes, I agree with you, but I am thinking for a court that wanted abortion issues to be decided by the state, if they uphold the rights for doctors to continue to prescribe this FDA approved medication, and you do have the scenario you just described where I take this drug with me to uh, from California into Texas, I'm eight weeks pregnant. And I now take this medication and I have an abortion at home. I now have, quote unquote, violated the Texas law, which says you can't get an abortion after six weeks. And the state of Texas is no longer, quote unquote, in charge of abortion, which was the goal of the Dobbs decision. So how do you reconcile the intent of Dobbs to make this all about states controlling women's health? women's reproductive rights, which is so, you know, anachronistic and onerous in itself. But this decision could allow us to circumvent any state's uh, restrictive abortion laws because the, just say, hey, come on to California and get, get your, your fill of these pills and take them back to your state. Well, the, the, the pills are supposed to be used early in the pregnancy. I'm not sure um, in fact, I know you, you can't uh, use them to terminate a pregnancy that is uh, later than, I think, uh, six weeks. I'm not sure um, exactly, but there's um, the um, fact that you're supposed to take uh, these early in, in the, the pregnancy and then follow them up with a, a, a second pill. And so, you know, to some extent, it's not um, going to make that much of a difference because after eight weeks, uh, the pills uh, only work 94% of the time. That's still um, a, after, a huge uh, percentage of time. 94% are pretty good odds. And in a state like Texas, what we saw with the attorney general, if you have an abortion in that state one day after you're six weeks pregnant, he wants to prosecute you. So, you know, that week or two difference for someone like Ken Paxton and someone, you know, like him in other states, uh, they would go to bat and fight that. I mean, they we know they would fight it. Uh, when we come forward, we've got to continue this conversation about the complete chaos and mess com uh, 
that the Supreme Court has made on the issue of abortion, but also talk about what's going to happen with insurrectionists. Are they all going to be let out of jail because this federal law that was used to prosecute them is narrow uh, and not as broad as the U.S. attorney has interpreted it to be? Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and we are talking about our very active U.S. Supreme Court. And in addition to that abortion pill case in this term, the justices will also hear a case brought by defendant Joseph Fisher. Fisher is seeking to dismiss a charge against him, accusing him of obstructing an official proceeding, namely the certification by Congress of President Joe Biden's election victory, which was disrupted by a mob of Trump supporters. Now, there are two other January 6th defendants, Edward Lang and Garrett Miller, who brought similar appeals, and the outcome of the Fisher case will obviously have an impact as it relates to those two cases as well. Now, the significant thing is that Trump has been charged with the same offense as well as others in his federal election interference case. And the Supreme Court's decision in Fisher uh, can impact what is going to happen in the special counsel's case against Donald Trump. Now, it's going to take months for the justices to hear oral arguments and issue a ruling uh, sometime during the court's uh, current nine-month term, which ends in June. Uh, We know, Professor Armstrong, that Trump's lawyers are going to try to use the Supreme Court's involvement as an opportunity to delay his election interference trial, uh, which had been scheduled to start in March. And the judge, uh, Judge Chuckin, has already said that that trial will not go forward until there is a decision uh, made by the Supreme Court. But but let's go back to Fisher and his claim that he was wrongfully prosecuted under this federal criminal code, and the code at issue is 18 U.S.C. 1512C2, which criminalizes any effort to corruptly obstruct influence or impede any official proceedings. Uh, Conviction can result in a prison sentence of up to 20 years. Talk to us about 18 U.S.C. 1512. So this is one of the provisions in the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley legislation that was enacted uh, with respect to the Enron case and uh, was has been used primarily with respect to evidence and uh, destroying evidence and uh, otherwise interfering with um, these investigations uh, that are being conducted by the federal government or, or these uh, cases. So one of the questions is, is the insurrection uh, an attempt to interfere with a a government proceeding uh, that's within the scope of of this this law. And um, the argument is is one that um, is is actually somewhat plausible given the reasons that the law was enacted and this being a very different situation. Uh, One of the requirements is uh, it being a uh, corrupt uh, attempt to uh, interfere. And that's probably not the case for most of the insurrectionists, though I think if you uh, were talking about applying it to Donald Trump, uh, it would certainly involve corruption. 
So this is a case that might be a little closer, but it would be dropping one charge and not necessarily uh, causing cases to be thrown out. But wait a minute, it would be dropping one charge against Donald Trump. But what about Fisher and the hundreds of others that have been prosecuted for the insurrection? Was this same statute used uh, for those prosecutions? And what impact would it have on all those people who have been convicted? Well, it would uh, depend on what they were convicted of. And it could certainly affect uh, their uh, term. But generally, people were charged with more than one uh, crime. And so what I'm saying is if you drop uh, a crime or a charge during prosecution, uh, that doesn't make the case disappear. There's still the remaining charges. And so this would be perhaps one part of the case, but not the entire case for most of these uh, individuals. As for people who've been convicted under it already, that's a more complicated question in terms of it affecting the sentences that they've received. Hmm. I know the uh, Justice Department has said that uh, even if the Supreme Court is taking this case up, it's too early for them to intervene intervene because none of the defendants have yet gone to trial on the obstruction charge. Do you agree with that position or do you think the government should be trying to intervene? Well, I think that you can charge a a statute with being um, unconstitutionally applied or being a misinterpretation um, of the the law, uh, even while the case is um, uh, ongoing. And so um, I'm not sure exactly what the approach of the uh, plaintiff, um, well, the defendants in this case, uh, who are, are charging the charges, um, you know, with respect to being able to um, carry on. It, it wouldn't be the entire case, is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. uh, because generally it's more than one charge. Okay, and so you don't think that even if the Supreme Court rules that this particular Sorbane Oxley uh, inspired federal uh, rule has been applied too broadly in these insurrection cases, that that means we're going to have to open up jails and let all the insurrectionists out? I doubt it very seriously. I mean, they'll again be able to have it um, their their sentences examined. Uh, And unless this was the only charge that uh, they were convicted under, uh, they're still convicted of other charges. But what happens with Trump? So uh, Judge Chuckin, who had this case set for March, has said, look, uh, I need to put a pause because I need the court. There's one, this decision, but there's also the uh, Supreme Court petition filed by special counsel asking the Supreme Court to jump in and decide whether court uh, whether uh, Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution because we know uh, he filed a motion with Judge Chuck and at the district court level, she said, absolutely not. You are not immune from prosecution because of your conduct. Uh, he then appealed to the uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. We don't have a decision from that circuit court. What's going to happen with the Supreme Court now that just uh, that the special counsel kind of jumped over 
the appellate court and says, look, let's, let's stop wasting time. Let's go straight to the Supreme Court. What do you expect happens in that case? Well, I don't think that the Supreme Court uh, has actually ever had a case where a sitting president has been tried. So this is a whole new world. And it's a question and part of separation of powers uh, because you have the um, both the judicial uh, and the executive branch involved uh, in, in this conflict. And in previous cases, uh, like when uh, the Clinton versus Jones case was being heard, that was a civil case, but the court um, allowed the case to proceed because it didn't think that there would be a violation of, of separation of powers. You know, in this particular case, uh, Donald Trump's assertion of uh, presidential immunity for uh, criminal actions that don't really have anything to do with his discharge of, of his duties, um, I think um, is, is something that is just not going to uh, appeal uh, to a court in terms of rule of law and uh, the idea that the president himself is subject to uh, the laws of the country. So it's a new case in terms of it being a, a criminal issue, but this is like, the facts are so terrible. So you can't really imagine a scenario under which the court says, absolute blanket presidential immunity. Every uh, criminal prosecution against Donald Trump stops today. I, I can't. I mean, and, and I can, I'm naive perhaps, but I, I just don't think that a court would countenance what, what he's uh, doing with the executive power. Yeah, would be uh, quite an expansive interpretation of executive power. And it would make true Donald Trump's statement that he could literally shoot someone uh, in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not suffer any consequences. It really would send a message that presidents are above the law and that presidents can pretty much do whatever and be immune from criminal prosecution. I so hope that we are both right. <laughs> Uh, we know we have a 6-3 majority conservative court, and we know we have jurists on that court, Clarence Thomas included, that have been incredibly favorable to Trump and have gone out of their way, including, you know, distorting precedent and twisting, you know, legal precedent in order to find uh, in ways that favor him. And when we come forward, we're going to talk about voting rights. That's another case that the Supreme Court has weighed in on in a way that uh, could mean that Republicans are given a green light to cheat in upcoming elections. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. By the Ad Council. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and we've talked about two cases that the Supreme Court decided to take up. There is another significant case that the Supreme Court on Tuesday declined to intervene in, and it's a dispute over a Republican-drawn commissioner's map in Galveston County, Texas. Now, this case is significant because we've seen the landmark Voting Rights Act under attack over the last decade or so. The court's decision in terms of not taking up this case means that the county commissioner's court map that a federal 
judge already ruled violated section two of the Voting Rights Act will remain in effect while a federal appeals court reviews the judge's decision next year. So, uh, Professor Armstrong, again, a significant case. And what does this tell you about the viability going forward of the Voting Rights Act? It seems like, you know, it's it's been constantly under attack. And uh, yet again, a district judge saying, hey, this map violates the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, but it's okay, it can remain in effect. Yeah, well, this is another uh, situation where you have the court uh, dealing with states uh, versus the federal government. And the court, uh, as you mentioned, really drew back uh, the Voting Rights Act's uh, coverage in the Shelby County uh, case about a, a decade ago. And by not um, preventing the, the district from uh, operating in the next election, uh, which is what the uh, uh, court had, uh, the, the lower court had decided uh, that the, uh, a different map had to apply. So, you know, what you have is this consistent taking away the vote by the Republican Party uh, from people of color, because the argument against the uh, districts was it tore up or divided the black and brown uh, districts that had existed uh, prior to this gerrymandered map. So this is just so huge in um, not allowing there to be some kind of remedy uh, for the charge of uh, discrimination, the finding really. And uh, it really does not bode well for the um, elections in, in the 2024. Uh, because we were seeing so much gerrymandering by the Republican Party, and they say it's on the basis of party, but you know, we know they conflate black votes with Democrats. Yeah, and, and talk to us about this determination by the court that because this wasn't a single minority district, that that somehow you know was the motivating factor in the decision here, that the district was a minority district when you combine the number of black voters with the Latino voters. And they said that that's not what the Voting Rights uh, Act had in mind, that the Voting Rights Act, you know, had in mind single minority districts, meaning a single district of black folks or a single district of, you know, Latino voters. What do you make of that argument? Well, it's, it's kind of confusing to me because it was a single district and now it's been divided into several districts and it, it's done uh, been done under this uh, republican gerrymandering and so to say that this doesn't apply because it's now different districts is kind of ingenuous because it was a single district in the past yeah what, what do you think happens with the voting rights act there was another case uh decided essentially saying that individuals, civil rights groups, can't bring uh, Voting Rights Act violation lawsuits, that only governmental entities can do so. Uh, that would be a major blow to the Voting Rights Act because we know it is those groups like the NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, and others that have 
challenge these gerrymandered maps under the Voting Rights Act. I think we're having some problems with your audio, Professor. Sorry, is better? Yeah, go ahead, please. Well, it would, this would just have a big impact on a lot of different uh, groups because it could be applied to other legislation. And so it, um, there's that concept of standing, of being able to uh, argue in court. And the court has previously allowed groups whose members are affected to argue. Well, this uh, case is maybe hurting that over uh, on its head, and that would be a disaster because uh, oftentimes groups are formed in order to uh, pursue this kind of um, this, this kind of litigation uh, by kind of combining the concerns of a number of people who are affected. So, um, if this whole thing about standing uh, is upheld, it's really a disaster for civil rights, I think. And I think this just shows us how important elections are. And oftentimes people, uh, Professor, don't think about judges, right? They don't think about the appointments of judges. They don't think that you know, if they're not involved in a court case, uh, they don't probably think that judges have anything to do with their lives, their daily lives. And obviously that's far from the truth. Uh, judges can make decisions that, and do make decisions that impact all of our daily lives. Like all of us know uh, a young woman that might find herself raped or may find herself sexually assaulted or just may find herself, you know, in a medical situation where she needs to have an abortion. So the laws around abortion and interpreted by judges uh, makes all of us, uh, should make all of us interested in, in being uh, very aware of who we elect, and particularly when you talk about presidents, because it's presidents that are going to make appointments to our U.S. Supreme Court and Donald Trump, uh, in a remarkable turn of events, had not one, not two, but three Supreme Court appointments. And if he is elected again, it is highly likely that he could get one and possibly two other uh, appointments to that court. I mean, we in theory could end up with an eight to one, uh, you know, seven to two conservative court. And we know these are lifetime appointments, uh, both at the federal district level, at the federal appeals level, and obviously at the U.S. Supreme Court level. We know Supreme Court justices have been under fire this year because of their, you know, violations of ethics. Uh, the expensive gifts and trips and private jets uh, that they have taken from billionaires who have interest before the court. So we have a, a judicial system at the Supreme Court level that is basically unpoliced. And we have Republican presidents like Donald Trump making appointments uh, to the court and courts making decisions that will have impact, will have a significant impact on our lives not just for one decade, but for decades to come. So these cases, if you've ever wondered about why elections matter, 
Uh, what the Supreme Court is, is going to be taking up next year is, again, Exhibit A as to why elections matter. Thank you so much, Professor Armstrong, for joining me and helping us make sense of all of these very important legal cases. We will continue to watch them. So watch this space. Next voice.